Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. invite us to open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, we're going to be reading verses 25 uh, to 30. So there Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 25, that at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father. Or sorry, no one knows the Son except the Father, and now no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We do pray that you yourself would increase in our hearts, and that with that increase would also come the increase of rest. Real rest. Rest for our souls. Rest in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> as I've gotten older, uh, my older clothes have gotten tighter. And I'd like to tell you that's due to increased muscle mass or to my clothes shrinking over time through many washings. Uh, but then I would be probably sinning by lying. Uh, at any rate, I've learned if my clothes won't make room for me, I've got to get in them and I've got to make room for myself. I've got to squat and I've got to, uh, to stretch and I've got to do some gymnastics to create space uh, that is conformable to me. So uh, this Advent season, uh, we're going to take our theme from the well-known hymn, Joy to the World. We sang it earlier and these lyrics specifically, Joy to the World, The Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. So, back to my clothes. You put something bigger in a space that is smaller, but elastic. It makes room. It makes room, it stretches it out, so I don't have to do my gymnastics anymore. No more squatting, no more stretching until they are washed again, and then you guys know 
Uh, they become smaller and have to do it. So now, Christ is already in our hearts. And yet Paul can speak of his ministry to the Galatians in terms of forming Christ in you. It's the, the resident Christ continuing to take up more functional space within us. You see, Christ cannot take up space without also simultaneously creating space, expanding capacity, stretching us out for living Christianly. Today, that involves rest. Which might be the opposite of where you thought we'd go. And if so, only proves how important it is to hear it. Uh, We are a busy people. Busy as Bethlehem, as we just sang. We are inclined to to do, we're inclined to achieve, we're inclined to earn, we're inclined to burn the candle at both ends, and often in the process, move quite astray, even in ministry, from the restful yoke of Jesus Christ. We are Marthas who need to sit down at the feet of Jesus, and may we be Pauls who do work so very hard while avoiding the temptation to take it all out of the realm of Christ's love and grace towards us. Even now it may sound strange to our ears, but where Jesus is increasing with us, so too will rest. So, let's come to our text, picking up in verse 25. And Jesus thanking the Father for doing what's pleasing to Him, which Jesus knows to be entirely good. And this is something we need to Lay to heart, because when things don't go the way that we want them to go, maybe we're treated improperly and our best, not nearly good enough, is counted as the worst. Well, hello darkness, my old friend. We are inclined to become discouraged, to become embittered, to become angry, to become critical, but almost certainly not thankful. We may even find ourselves critical of God for not honoring us the way we think we ought to be honored. And so again, we're hardly grateful, much less inclined to give Him praise. And this isn't coming out of left field for us. Uh, It's coming from what's just gone before our verses. Uh, Jesus has just been rejected. He's just been rejected by a few cities in which He did, He says, most of His mighty works and great revelation was met by no repentance. And now imagine how depressing that might have been for him who came into the world precisely to bring about repentance, to save sinners. How embittering it could have been, how angering it could have been, how emptying of gratitude to God. But to the contrary, Jesus, whom all persons should love, thanked the Father, even when He knew it was the Father's will that He should there, in those cities, be despised and rejected. And it's just there, it's just there, in His knowledge that it was His Father's will, that Jesus is grateful even for that outcome. He knows God to be His Father who loves him and is unquestionably wise and good in all he does. Jesus believes 
that whatever is pleasing to the Father, that can never be something that is poor or debatable or up for criticism. It may sting our flesh. It may perplex and vex our minds. It may be different than what we would have willed. But that only finally proves that God, believe it or not, knows better how to govern His world, how to carry out His purposes, and solidify our joy in His glory than we do. And here then, Jesus, knowing God, as only God can and does, demonstrates this reality for us. His thankfulness, listen to this, His thankfulness is not in His universal acceptance, but in the achievement of His Father's pleasure, whatever that meant for Him, including eventually death on a cross. Here though, what is the Father's good pleasure? Well, at least in this instance, it's the revelation of Christ to the heart of a peculiar people. And no doubt this is part of the deep things of God. It is very mysterious, and so we do need to be careful with it. But so again, Jesus has just been willfully rejected, and in the verses just prior, those folks, he says, will be accountably judged for their rejection of Him. He does clearly hold them really responsible for their unbelief. And yet afterwards, right afterwards in our text, His immediate recourse is to the sovereignty of God. Which once more, He praises. You see, He calls His Father by another name. What is that other name there? The Lord of heaven and earth. And the idea then is that the whole world of man is before Him and under Him, under His rule, under His care, and that how the plan of heaven then interacts with us on earth, whether revealing or even hiding Christ, is entirely and inarguably at the Father's good will. It's at His disposal. Now, that's hard, but we're somewhat helped in this by the details Jesus gives. How, with all the people before him, God has not done as we probably would have done. He's not revealed Christ only to the bold and beautiful. He's not revealed Christ only to the intelligent and talented. He's not revealed Christ only to the wealthy and industrious, and certainly not because of those things has He revealed Christ to any heart. But neither has He revealed Christ only to the opposites of all those things, who yet in their hearts think they are those things. Very big and common in our day. The Father's good pleasure is a salvation by grace. Because grace most accentuates His glory. If it were otherwise, that is, if Christ were revealed to our hearts on the basis of something attractive about us, we would glory in ourselves. We would boast in our smarts 
We would boast in our beauty, we would boast in our industry, we would boast in our righteousness and whatever else we could, but God then, in our doing of that, would be stripped of His glory and Christ would be stripped of His particular, I'll get it out, beauty. And this text then is the Holy Spirit saying, I won't allow that. I don't allow it. He's showing us that God has designed salvation to turn the world on its head. To burst our bubble. Or as we say in our mission statement as a church, to magnify the glory of His grace. So here Jesus says, God has hidden the truth about Him from the wise and understanding. While revealing all this to little children. Now, what does He mean by that? Again, not what we might think at first. We jump quite quickly, don't we, to the conclusion. We just read it very plainly and simply, the conclusion that smart people won't be saved. (laughs) While rather simple people will be. I hope we know from Scripture and experience that that is not at all what Jesus means. The Savior, I think, was pretty smart. Uh, Paul was a pretty smart guy. Lydia was, was wealthy. Right? She had lots of money. She was not just a poor person economically. And so the emphasis here is rather on what a person thinks about themselves relative to God. It's whether one is wise in their own eyes, which a simple person can still be. Or whether they are open, so to speak, to being taught by God. Do they think they have it all figured out, that they can in a way save themselves, or as a gift of common grace, have they maintained some some semblance of teachability? Uh, Jesus is talking here about basic humility over against our more natural element, which is pride. Friends, if you can't be taught by God, you may never be taught in the way you must be taught. You see, Christ can shine all around us, do most of His mighty works right in front of our face. And we can see it, and we can can debate it, and still conclude it beneath us, as all those cities had. We need God to cause Christ to shine, not just all around us, but most importantly, all within us, which in general, He's ordained not to do as a matter of justice against our pride. Our pride must be utterly destroyed if we would ever live. Just so we're clear, see here, we can't even dignify the childlike simplicity that Jesus mentions as if it merited this heart revelation of Christ or somehow put God in our debt, He owes it to us. For what does Jesus say in verse 26? But that even still, if Christ is so revealed to us, it is an act of God's, what? Gracious will. Gracious will. His mere pleasure. And so, even if I'm the the little child in this sense, I'm still a sinner existing in the dark and deservedly headed to hell apart from God's grace. 
And just let me leave, uh, leave us with this then, uh, that this method of grace, far from doing what we might first charge, actually opens the gate to God wider, not narrower in this sense. It says anyone, rich or poor, treasured or trashed, genius or handicapped, rose or thorn, Jew or Gentile, scribe, Nicodemus, Samaritan woman, anyone who is willing, far as they can, to give a ready ear to Christ may be saved. If it were not by sovereign grace, if it were by our judgment, salvation would be very select and I imagine quite tribal. But as it is, it's available to all sorts. Even every person who genuinely, even if unbelievingly, perceives themselves to be of no account. And to me at least that makes more sense. It gives some help to our Lord's thanksgiving here in these verses. Even in His rejection, the Father has only acted justly. And in a way that glorifies grace for a world of sinners. And to add on there, we come to verse 27 and Jesus revealing. We've discussed the Father's pleasure and now to the Son's grace. And so He says this, these just amazing words. All things have been handed over to Me by My Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And if we cut it off right there, we are in big trouble. But He goes on. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Hmm. Now, in these words, we have a deep mind that both casts us out and calls us in. Jesus says that the Father has entrusted all things to Him. Everything, especially related to our salvation, is in His hands. And as it is everything, friend, it is in vain that we look for anything related to salvation anywhere else. The Father has appointed a salvation by grace and entrusted no part of it to anyone or anything but His Son. Not to religious figures, neither Muhammad or, or Mary, not to state, not to policy, not to education, not to technology, not to the brightest minds, not to the most activist ones, not to you, not to me. Everything is in the hands of Jesus. So, that. If anyone would ever be saved, it will be by Him and Him alone. You see what Jesus says? He says, we must know God. And as we only can know God by Christ, we must know Christ. But, He says, no one knows Me except the Father, and no one knows the Father except Me. In other words, we, you and I, are for us impossibly locked out from the saving knowledge of God in Christ. This is the consequence of sin. We've been put out of Eden. And even if we wanted to, which we don't by nature, we can't in ourselves then manage a kind of re-entry. We're on the outs and we're in the dark. You remember what John said about this, we love to have it so. 
But so our only hope of salvation, our only hope of salvation is the gracious choice or election of the one entrusted with the Father's pleasure. Did you hear that? Without the election that he's talking about in verse 27, no one would ever be saved. No one would see the truth about Jesus. No one would ever know God. But by it, by that final and in verse 27, and those few words that follow it, anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him, you eventually get into the Bible, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, an innumerable multitude (laughs) from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, they got it, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. No one knows God in Christ as we must accept God in Christ and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Are we to criticize Jesus then that the city folk rejected Him? Are we to say to Him, that's your own doing, Jesus. You made your bed, now lie in it. Again, I don't think so. I think we're to see we were all toast. We were all to receive divine justice were it not for this grace of Jesus. As one put it, quote, man can never obtain salvation unless Christ gives it. We can never discover what he has not disclosed. So seeing the truth about Jesus that knowledge of the glory of God in His face so that we repent and believe in Him, Christ has done that. It's a work of His grace. And again then, far from unfairly excluding souls, which we would do, (laughs) it gives hope even to the chiefest of sinners. And so, let's come then to Jesus' calling. Picking up in verse 28. And even heading into it, I'd have us see that in Jesus' mind, the reality of this election does nothing if not energize the felt need for a universal invitation. You see it? Right on the back of His sovereign grace, He acts to invite all, now listen, to labor and are heavy laden to simply come to Him. All my prayer this week now has been to break this down for us in a way that gives us rest. It's to get more of Christ in us, who is our rest in every most needful way. So, as we go, I think what we have in these verses is an invitation to God's kind of deliverance, and God's kind of discipleship as mediated through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so first, Jesus gives the invitation. And we see it as both universal and not 
He does invite all, but He also qualifies the all. It is all, what you say, who labor and are heavy laden. That is, the call is to all, but it's not first simply to Christ, but to the convicting sense of a spiritual burden that drives one to Christ. Why come at all to be relieved of a burden we don't know we ought to have? And seek in vain then to bear ourselves. You guys know I love the Pilgrim's Progress. Sorry if you haven't read it before. But uh, here we go again. What drove Christian, his main character, what drove Christian out of the city of destruction towards the celestial city and so past Mount Sinai, which was of no help to his burden, all the way to the cross, which alone relieved him of his burden, if not the realization of his sin and his guilt and judgment, his burden, and that no matter how hard he labored to be rid of it all, he couldn't relieve an ounce at all. And that in fact, the more he tried to relieve it in himself, the heavier that burden got and the more miserable he became in the process. I do believe that's something of what Jesus addresses here. How without the sight of grace, we labor by nature to convince ourselves, against the testimony of our consciences, by the way, that we must, can, and have, but haven't kept God's requirements. And it torments us. I've spoken with many, even recently, who quite aware of their sin, yet live under the whip of their own and others' moral expectations, as if that is what justifies them with God. But as that target is always moving, and whatever the aim remains always short of what God actually requires, which is a moral perfection, and we then find ourselves a constant failure blinded to the relief that there is in Christ alone, we find occasion in moments of clearest self-reflection to beat ourselves and punish ourselves and lament ourselves. I have seen the tears overflowing there, and I've seen them overflow so much that they run completely dry. And in infinitely better news, so has Jesus. And Jesus has a heart and a cross, and a cure to spare. Come to me, he says. That's it. <laughs> Nothing else required. You say, what about the law? Oh, what about morality? What, what about righteousness? We have none. <laughs> and what good news? Jesus says, we need none. He just says, come to me and I will give you rest. Come as you are and I will give you all I am for you. You see, what we need to be at rest with God in our souls can be had, but only in Jesus by way of His death and His resurrection. 
he can say, come to me and find rest because he would do and has now done our heavy lifting for us. He fulfilled God's demands from the heart and gave himself up as our substitute on the cross so that he went through the hell and through the death that was due our sin and our guilt and our shame and came out the other side with a life and an atonement and a forgiveness and a righteousness to give us that does actually justify us and give a peace with God that has neither flaw nor expiration. The Sabbath, or the rest, of the soul with God is settled where the soul is set upon Christ crucified and raised. Now, see what immediately follows. This rest, deliverance, gives rise to work. Deliverance gives birth to discipleship. It's an odd couplet here, right? I will give you rest. And we're like, sweet Jesus. I will give you rest. And then what does he immediately say? He says, uh, put on the yoke. Just my yoke. And get to work. Learn from me. Verse 29. And so on. So, in coming to Christ for rest, we see there is yet a yoke. And there is a classroom. And even a burden. Verse 30. In other words, we're still given to servitude. But, and this is all the difference, the master has changed. It's no longer Satan. It's no longer sin. It's no longer self. It's no longer a Phariseeism bent on self-righteousness, all things that love to weigh us down and beat our souls senseless. It's Jesus who, as He says, is gentle and lowly in heart. Now then, we get a lot of questions about discipleship here, and I praise God for it. So, here's a bit of reflection on the topic from Jesus. Number one, again, there is a yoke. Put that thing on, but it is easy. There is a classroom, but it's at His feet. There is a burden, but it is light. There is a discipleship. But it's always on the back of deliverance. You see that? In other words, neither he nor we are asking each other to do anything except in view of what Christ has already done for us. Discipleship done well relieves the burden of needing to win a smile from God that we already have in Jesus. It doesn't say, go on, go win divine favor. It says, Christ has won that for you, now go. It's not live so as to earn God's love, but learn. To live out of God's love for you, clear as day in Christ. Beloved, it matters that we keep the gospel before our going. His grace ahead of our obedience. 
deliverance at the fore of discipleship. That's one thing. Here's another. You say, but Brian, I fail a lot. (laughs) I sin way more than I should by now. I let him down so much, I feel I can hardly be called his disciple. Surely he is fed up with me and put off by me, and I'm right then to be restless. First, join the club. It's not at all exclusive. Someone like Peter may very well be the president. But to your point, that's where we've got to learn to be directed to the heart of Jesus. Here in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, we have the only place in the Bible where the heart of Christ and therefore of God is described. And it's Christ who describes it. Most likely against our misguided suspicions as gentle and lowly. Is this heart of Christ who and how He most deeply and naturally and easily and truly is toward us, is this heart of Christ front and center in our discipling? Because, as we see in this text, it is for Jesus. Beloved, Jesus is nothing close to a Pharisee at heart. At heart, he's the farthest thing from a harsh taskmaster. And how restful this revelation should be for our souls. I imagine we hardly believe it. That when we are us, and you know what I mean, he stays as he is. Jesus. Gentle and lowly in heart. We are far harder on ourselves and others than He is. We sin and stray and go our way. We set our standards and strictures. And then we impute to Him how we would handle ourselves. No grace, no patience, no perspective. Just punishing, short on gentleness, harshly. But Jesus is not like us. He's gentle and lowly in heart. As one puts it, Jesus is not trigger happy. He is not harsh. He is not reactionary. He is not easily exasperated. He's the most, quote, understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. No one has ever been more approachable and accessible. The minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply this. Open yourself up to Him. His desire that you find rest is greater, much greater, even than your own. So let me throw something at us. If our discipling is burdening and tiring. It is sub-Christian. It's missed 
the heart of Christ. And thus who He is. And further, what He means to give in discipleship. The goal of Jesus (laughs) in discipleship is rest for the soul. It's not just doing more, doing more for Jesus. It's resting more in Jesus. And then doing more out of the rest we found. If we're burning ourselves out, if we're weighed down and breaking, that's not from Jesus. That's our own doing. We've misapprehended or we have circumvented or we have ignored His heart. He is the binder of the bruised reed. He is the fueler of the faint wick. He doesn't lead us by by grand rapids. He leads us by still waters. He is not put off by us. He died for us. And He lives with an unquenchable and unbeatable will to gently hold us fast. And beloved, our discipling ought then to feature this. The world disciples by a list of do's and don'ts. It's all about the work that wearies body and soul. But Christ, who calls us, wait for it, who calls us to to still greater works than that, does so not by a list of rules, but by a look and see. A look and see with His work and His heart front and center in which we find rest. In sum, true discipleship, biblical discipleship, is a lifelong process of learning, surprisingly I think, how to rest in Jesus. (laughs) Or how to find in Jesus a mobilizing rest for our souls. This is what He wants for us. You see it? That is the call here. It's to rest from thinking we need to earn God's love. And if we could, which we can't, it's to rest from thinking we must keep it or it will thickly fly away. It's to rest from the due threatenings of God's law. It's to rest from the stripes of our own consciences. It's to rest from the guilt and the shame and the fear of our sins. The Lamb has been slain. It's to rest in the assurance of this gracious election and all that it implies for us. It's to rest knowing that all things are in those hands that were crucified for us. It's to rest in the Savior in whom our Father eternally trusts. Why don't we? It's to rest in a heart that refuses to treat us harshly. To rest in a heart that refuses to treat us as we deserve. It's to rest in a master who is unchangeably gentle and lowly. Who loves us when we are most unlovely. Who bids us in our breaking only come to me. It's to rest in the mercy of Christ over against the meritocracy of man. 
is to rest in his cross-bearing hospitality over against another's self-righteous exclusivity. It's to rest our identity, not even in meeting one's reasonable expectations, to say nothing of our own unreasonable ones, but in his gospel and what he says about us. It's to rest our insufficiencies in his all-sufficiency, our many and manifest weaknesses in his promised power, all our anxieties in all his assurances. Beloved, one main reason we're often so tired and broken and thin is because we're trying to be our own Savior and Sovereign. When we aren't and can never be. We can never have this rest when in effect we have fired Jesus from His post and replaced Him with ourselves. Right here, Jesus is saying, you needn't worry about all that. Saving yourself. Being the sovereign of your life. You needn't worry about all that. I've got you covered. What you cannot be, I am So just come to me and let me be it. My friend, if you are heavy laden by the labor of trying to figure out all in vain how to save yourself, just stop. And repent and come to Jesus and trust Him. Jesus has rest and peace with God to give you. If you'd like to talk about that more, I didn't just invite you after service to come and talk with me. I'd love to talk with you more about it. Beloved, as we begin our Advent season, I just want to say this, as the King increases with us, so too will our sense of rest. He cannot take up space in us without creating space for it, rest. And so this Advent season, if we like more of that kind of rest. Let every heart prepare Him room. Let's go to Him. Let's go to the Gospel. Let's go to His very heart. Let's be a people who will not rest until we all know how to rest in Jesus. Again, Advent is an invitation. He came down to say to us, come to me and I will give you rest. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you are for us. Please help us. Please help us to know more of it, to know more of you, to have more of you functionally within our hearts. Please give us rest in every way that you mean to give us rest, the most needful ways. Please come and meet our need. We ask it for your glory and our peace. In Jesus' name, amen.